Well, this morning I invite your attention to God's holy word as we look to Psalms 102. Psalms 102 as we talk about a psalm, the prayer of the afflicted. The prayer of the afflicted. One of the seven penitential psalms. You may be familiar with those. The psalms are a beautiful uh, words, poetry, if you will. And in Hebrew poetry, there's a lot of redundancy. There's layers of truth that kind of like are piled on in order that the author gets his point across in very vivid and beautiful language. I'd like to read in Psalms 102 this morning up to verse 11 and give you um, this first. There's a lot here. Obviously, we can't take it all in, but maybe if we just do a flyover from about 30,000 feet, we can pick out some of the neat things about this very unique psalm. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch, and I'm as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of thine indignation and thy wrath. For thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth. I'm withered like grass. Well, I'll stop there for the sake of time. But I did want to leave you this, uh, this idea that is presented by the psalmist that this is an afflicted man's prayer. You know, for many of you veteran believers out there, you know what trials do in your life. Uh, they're not happy times, but God's designed trials and afflictions in your life for a particular end. As we see here in this scripture, I hope, by the grace of God. If you notice in the caption prior to the psalm, it says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Penitential psalms in the Bible include psalms that are very popular, like Psalms 51, when David prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Penitential penitential psalms are psalms that really depict a person's anguish of his sinnerhood before God and seeks penitence, seeks absolution, seeks liberty from the sins that so easily beset him. He's overwhelmed by his weakness. He's overwhelmed by the frustration, his inability to clearly see. Well, I want to show you this morning that this particular psalm is very odd. In the first place, it's located in a very uniquely place. It's very unique. If you look around, for instance, Psalms 95 is a psalm of praise and worship. Psalms 96, it speaks about the God who's a king. In Psalms 97, it speaks to the power and the greatness of God as we sung. In the 99th chapter, we think here of the faithfulness of God. In the 100th Psalm, it's a hymn of praise. What an elevated and lofty theme. In the 101st Psalm, it speaks of the promises that David had of confidence in the Lord. In the 103rd Psalm, this is a very popular hymn. Of God's love, bless the Lord, O my soul, it begins with, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits. And so, in Psalms 104, he speaks about the creator God. And in Psalms 105, about the faithfulness of God in providing care 
for his people. And so in all these lofty themes, here's this one psalm uniquely placed, separated from the rest, as this poor, afflicted soul pours out his anguish, his complaint before God. And isn't that the case? That trials have a way of isolating us from all that's around us. To make us singled out, if you will. And we are alone, if you will. Separated from the beauty of God's holiness. In the trial, we feel like we are all alone. It's also interesting that this particular psalm is unnamed. David put his name on the one before it. He put his name on the one after it. But this particular psalm has got no author to it. The prayer of the afflicted. Some have referred this psalm to those who were carried away in the great Babylonian captivity. They're taken from their homes, separated from their families, in great and terrible stress. Under that great, uh, powerful king called Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, such awful tragedies existed in those days. And the illusion here in this psalm, as it reflects what he left behind, is a powerful imprint in his heart, as we see, as we see later on. But trials have a way of erasing our identity. We kind of lose uh, our personal, um, who we are. Trials misplace us. They put us in a land... David at one place cried. He said, from the ends of the earth, I cried unto thee. Have you ever been to the end of the earth? Have you ever felt isolated, taken away from home? Homeless, if you will. This psalm is placed very unique without a name. I myself personally feel the author is David. If you look at David's life, he was hunted like a partridge by Saul, the king. And it wasn't just for jealousy. It wasn't just for envy. You know, the people loved David. He was a great victorious uh, captain, if you will. And he delivered several blows to the Philistines. And the people honored David like no other. And Saul recognized that. But there's something in addition to Saul's hatred for David. And we find that in the smaller print of of, uh, Samuel's letters. And that is that Saul recognized David to be God's choice to be king over Israel. There's no doubt about it. That's what he was rebelling against. He despised the fact that it was he that David was God's man for the job. And so David, no doubt, if you look into his life and his experiences, when he was driven in certain places away from God, felt like he was unidentified, if you will, that he lost all recognition to who he once was, chased out of the kingship by his own son Absalom, chased in fear of his life by King Saul. He lost the identity of his kingship. And so two trials have a way of making us feel misplaced, lost, unidentified, without any recognition of what it once was. One of my favorite movies, I'm sure many of you, I don't know about the young people out there, but Gone with the Wind is a favorite. My wife, whenever she's got a sickness, will pull up uh, in the couch and watch such a long movie with Clark Gable. There is uh, Chet Butler and old Scarlett O'Hara. What a beautiful movie. But it pictures, uh, it symbolizes the great powerful wealth and prosperity of the old South and the beautiful mansion named Terra stood as a representation of that great prosperity until the ravishes of the winds of war defaced its value, made it misplaced and no longer a prominent feature as it once was when Terra must undergo the ravages of the Confederacy and of the Union forces destroying what it once was. And so we see also in our own lives, when we're going through trials, we feel misplaced. We feel like we're not what we once were, like we, what we should be, what we've designed to be. And this is the outcome as we lose our identity. But also, in this particular psalm, it is a way in which we are hidden from view. 
hidden from view. As I said, we don't know who authored it. And so whoever wrote it is afraid or maybe possibly in fear of identifying himself. And so it is in trials. You know, when we're going through the trial and the afflictions of our life, we don't want to be noticed. We want to cower. We want to hide. We don't measure up to what we, what we once were. We don't measure up to anything we want to be. We feel hopeless at times. And we've all been there. We've all been there. And I pray that God will give us grace. I remember at Columbia, after church one Sunday, a woman came out um, exclaiming to me, Brother Steve, Brother Steve, you don't know what I've been through. The trials, the difficulties that I faced. Yes, I said, I don't know. But the Lord does. The Bible says that there's no no temptation taken man, but that which is common to man. Over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In other words, we can... Uh, feel personally uh, stepped upon, if you will, uh, by certain trials. And we feel like we're singled out, that nobody else has experienced what we ourselves have experienced. And yet we're encouraged because no man has experienced a, a trial in such a way that he's, uh, it's uncommon to everybody else. Now, the length of your trial, the, the type of trial that you may go through, the difficulty, um, what kind of trial may be different, but the effect of it and the purpose of it uh, remains the same. Uh, you may have such a little tri- uh, trial compared to somebody else, but its effect on you can be the same. And so while somebody else is going through trial, we don't judge them or we don't say, well, my trial is bigger than yours. Uh, you don't know what I'm going through. But the Lord knoweth our frame. He knows the way that I take. And when I am through the fire, right, I shall come forth as gold as Job saith. And so trials have a way of doing all this to us as we go through them. But there's a lot of purpose in trial. There's a lot of reason for trial. I'll share with you just a scripture in First Peter that might give us some headway into looking into the very purposes of trial. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, ye are in heaviness through manifold or divers or multiple temptations or testings, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found. Watch this. Here's the great overall reaching purposes of trials in your life. This is the most singular, most important purpose of why you may suffer anguish in life. Why you just don't go through life skating, breeze. Why you must undergo affliction. Watch this. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's an amazing thing. At one point in the future, you shall look back with gladness as you will see the hand of God preserving your soul your body and your frame through the most difficult passages of your life's experience. At that point, now I pray a whole lot sooner, but at that point, I can assure you, it will redound unto the praise, honor, and glory of God. But I pray for the effect of it today, that it may be very prosperous. In what ways do uh, afflictions prosper you right now? That's kind of odd, isn't it? How can I be benefited through a trial? Well, it humbles you. It humbles you. And isn't hum- humility a good thing? It seems like it's God's stamp of operation, his modus operandi, if you will, in the lives of God's children throughout the scriptures. Whether it be Moses, or whether it be Jonah, or whether it be Joseph, or Jacob, Abraham, just go throughout the host of characters in the Bible. Do you think you're any different? God has his stamp upon you, and it's called humility. He will humble you. David said in that great Psalms 119 and verse 71, It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. There's something very mysterious about 
humility. It's then our ears are open. It's then our eyes clearly see. Someone has said that tears are given by God to wash our eyes that we can see clearly amidst the afflictions and troubles of life. There's no doubt David experienced great affliction. But it was then that he learned the greatness of God. It was then he realized that he himself added nothing to the mixture of his benefits. That he was nothing. He was considered worthless and empty. And that's a place where, you know, afflictions will take you. When you're humbled, there's nothing left. A minister must be humbled, if you will, before he's used by God. I believe that is very important. If I might swerve just for a minute here to remind us all as a church body that those who we entertain in the ministry must be, must be proven because the ministry or that apparatus that surrounds it, excuse me, may give you an aura of pride and arrogance. And many a young men or new converts to the faith have been condemned through pride of the devil and have done great disservice to the church for generations have caused more problems than it's worth than trying to dish out uh, credentials and ordination papers when it wasn't really sufficient time. The fact is that a man of God who's set aside by the church to preach ought to be a man who has learned through the affliction of God's uh, work in his life. That he's learned. The key phrase there is learned. And so what's one of the most important things we as a church, this is God's seminary, if you will, we are the observers of what is right and wrong in terms of the judgments uh, from the pulpit. And I uh, bid all uh, the young men here this morning who have a desire to communicate the word of God that they must preach and teach the doctrinal importance of the Bible first. That they must assure the people of God of the great doctrinal themes of the Bible. And this way we can understand that you're suited to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, this is very important. And so we want to note that you have learned all the great doctrines of the faith and adorned the doctrine of God in all things. And that's very important. I always encourage younger men who have an aspiration to preach and teach that wherever they're called upon to bring forth a doctrinal message to ensure the confidence of the Lord's people who are uh, making those kind of judgments, uh, to assure them that they fit well, that they understand the doctrine of God's holy Bible. Well, also, not only do trials humble us, but they also refine us. Yes, refine us. That's the illusion that Peter uses about gold tried in a fire. You see, your faith is more precious than gold. Now, what would it be if your faith was never tried? God wants to know what you're made out of. I'd like to know myself what I'm made out of. Now, that that comes with a little caveat, doesn't it? Because it comes with the idea that I will be tried in the furnace of affliction. That's what David said in another place. Notice with me in Psalms chapter 66, the same illusion is carried throughout the Bible. You know, all the instruments of war, the utensils, the variety of furniture apparatus in the Old Testament, they were cleansed and sanctified, and in many cases, through the fire. You know, some through the fire, some through the water, but by the grace of God, all through the blood. But our faith is tried in the furnace of great heat. And that's how we know what you're made out of. In Psalms chapter 66, notice this in verse 10. For thou, O God, has proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. So the idea here is that when you heat metals like silver, under the great heat, that great precious metal literally becomes liquid form. And in liquefying this metal under great heat... The dross or the impurities, they rise to the top. And so the workman takes his utensils and takes and shoves off the old stuff so that he continues through a process where this gold or silver is refined and it comes forth shining. And your faith will be tried. You could be a young person here today 
who join the church and you're excited about the Word of God. You've got a lot of zeal. But God has something in mind for you. He's going to refine you. He's going to try you through the furnace of affliction. He might bring something into your life. Great anguish, great affliction, great loss. And he's going to test you. Whether you'll be bitter or whether you'll be blessed. Whether you'll be used or whether you're not. Whether that dross will rise to the top or in, and be removed, purged by God's own hand. Or whether you'll hold on to it. And that bitterness will act like a cancer and grow and grow to where you be void of the happiness that's promised you through God's word. He said, and brought us into the net. Thou latest affliction upon our loins. Wow. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. In other words, these children under affliction, like the one we read about, who bore the reproach of evil and mad men, men guide you and lead you sometimes in ways that you wouldn't want to go. And all this part of the great furnace of affliction. We went, he said, through fire and through water. But thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into the house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows. And so this great deliverance leads him to service. But he must be refined first. That place where it says wealthy place. In the Hebrew, it's a phrase that's used only one other place in the book. And that is found in Psalms 23. When the psalmist says in the great 23rd, he said, my cup runneth over. He's going to bring you out of a very hard and difficult place to a place where there's green pastures, where there is water, where there's freshness, where your cup runneth over. Over. That's where you want to be. So when you find yourself in the place of affliction and difficulty, that's compounded over and over again. We don't know just how long his affliction was. We don't know the degree in which he had to suffer and how long he had to endure. But we do, want, we do know one thing, that when he will come forth, he shall come forth as gold, refined, tried in the fire. And so it humbles us to learn. It refines us to serve. There he mentioned, I will make my burnt offerings in the house of God. God's purposes for bringing you through affliction is, if I might add, self-serving to God's glory. Yes, it's for his glory and his interest that he puts you through these afflictions. And he's going to do it to guarantee it. Now, if you want, if you desire... Uh, to preach or teach as a young man. I can assure you, you will be tried if you're going to be used for His glory. If you're a young person today or an old person for that matter that wants to be used in God's kingdom, God will try you in order to best uh, bring you to a place where you will serve Him through afflictions. I mean, I hear somebody on the bed of affliction. You go to the hospital and you visit them. You know, what are you going to do? Well, you've been where they're at. You can identify with that person because you yourself have been through a very difficult time in your life. But you can share and you can identify. You can pray with. You can encourage. These are the reasons. And so God refines you to serve. But also, and by the way, think of great people in the Bible like Jonah. You remember? Do you think he learned something? You know, he didn't want to serve God, did he? But through that great trial, he, he ultimately would serve God and be a preacher to that great city of Nineveh. But also, I think tri- uh, trials prepare us. They prepare us for something. They prepare us to do the will of God. And look at the life of Joseph, for instance. Look at Joseph as a young man. I mean, he was the pride of the family. Even his father singled him out among all his other brethren, his two, all the other two, uh, 11 sons. He was a favorite of Jacob. And might I add to any father here this morning, maybe it'd be a wise thing for us not to favor any particular son. I mean, there was jealousy and envy and hatred. And eventually, what did those brethren try to do? They tried to murder that kid. And they ended up putting him in a ditch and selling him ultimately 
in slavery, and there he went down to Egypt. But look at Joseph as a young man who's 17 years old, really thinking in himself something, strutting his stuff. Boy, those brethren, the scripture says, hated him thrice. They hated him. They despised him. His father gave him a coat of many colors. I mean, he kind of piled on, didn't he? He gave him a position of management among his older brothers. That's a tremendous story. But what does God have in mind for Joseph? He's going to be sold into slavery. He's going to end up in a servant in Potiphar's house, ultimately in prison for his righteous stance against Potiphar's enticing sexual advances. But Joseph will learn in prison the darkness of a cell to be humbled, eventually prepared for a great purpose in, uh, for, in, in, in the hands of Almighty God. And so we see at the outset those particular things for which we undergo great afflictions. In this particular text, we can see in this whole chapter, there's two major themes. Two. Now, we read for you the first. And that theme is pretty much what we've mentioned already. It's a theme of great affliction. Uh, that we amplify this morning through a lot of experiences and various uh, analogies. But look with me in some of these scriptures. He said, hide not thy face from me in the day when I'm in trouble. So one good thing about faith, no matter how hard it's pressed, no matter how difficult it finds itself, by the grace of God, there's prayer. There's a little bit of interest left in the heart. Now, I don't know about how much, but even little faith is faith, isn't it? No matter how uh, despised it may be under the cloak of affliction, there's faith. Hide not thy face, O God, from me as I go through this terrible uh, trouble. Incline your ear unto me this day and answer me speedily. You know, we don't have time to waste in a trial. There may be no tomorrow. We feel that there's no tomorrow. How many times have you been in places where, you know, there was no tomorrow? You know, your parents, your loved ones, sick, the difficulty. You, you couldn't even think about tomorrow. There was enough on your plate right now. Sufficient for the day itself is the evil thereof. Right now, I've had enough. I can't take it no more. And that's how we feel. And so we go to God, Lord, answer me. Not tomorrow, not in a week, but I need to hear right now. I need to know that you're with me. He says, for my days are consumed like smoke. And it's the illusion. David said in another place, I'm like a bottle in the smoke. Those old-time bottles, they would set in the fire. And the fire would give it smoke. David said, I'm a, I'm a horrible-looking person right now. I'm weathered in the storm of affliction. I even look uh, like I'm worn out, in a, like a bottle in smoke. My heart is smitten, withered like grass. I even forget to eat my bread. How many times have you suffered great anguish and you couldn't have an appetite? You lost, it was gone. It was lost. You didn't want to eat. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I think of Job and what he went through. He lost it all. He lost it all. And there he was found, scraping the boils of his flesh with clay pots. His skin was so thin he was such a miserable wretch to look upon. His wife said, curse God and die for this horrible stuff that has come across you. His own friends said, what is it in your life that caused this misery? And so we might have a legalistic approach, not only to our own sin, excuse me, our own suffering, but also the sin, uh, suffering in the lives of others. But it's not always that, is it? Yes, we're chastened at times, and we know when and why and what for. But in many cases, affliction is just the way it is. Affliction is part of this time world. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. By virtue of what? By virtue of the fact that God has given you something, a principle of something that is not existent in this world. And it doesn't find root. It doesn't find any place of rest in this world. And it's called faith. Faith is vomited out in this world. It's rejected by this world. It finds no home in this world. And so it's a place, naturally speaking, where it finds upheaval and distress. That faith is in your heart. That's why you have trouble. Lord Jesus, deliver me from this problem that I have. And so faith um, it finds itself out of place in this world. 
Well, continue on. He says, I'm like a pelican in the wilderness. Now, if I'm not mistaken, a pelican is not found in the wilderness, is it? Isn't that a seafaring bird around the, the, the bay eating fish? But there you are, displaced, out of socket, out of joint. You're worthless. You're no good to yourself, no good to others. This is how you feel. You're like a pelican in the wilderness. How about an owl in the desert? I know there's desert owls, but there you are in the night seeking whatever you can find to eat. You're miserable, you're alone, and you're hidden from you. Nobody can see you in your sorrow and in your distress. He said, I'm a sparrow alone on the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. I'm eating ashes. You know, the Old Testament has this vivid picture of people in great distress. They would take ashes from the pit and put it upon themselves. They would rent their clothes, and it was a visible demonstration of anguish. Here, the psalmist says, I'm eating those ashes. That's how horrible it is. You know, when somebody's in a great trial, and you can try to comfort them, you can try to be a blessing to them, and I encourage you to do so. But in some times, and in some cases, the difficulty is hard to get out. You're, nothing, you're no good. You're nothing but ashes. You're ate up. Now watch where he goes with this, because I'm not too sure, we're going to look at this for a second, whether this is really an honest, but yet um, imperfect assessment of his own position. But I want to watch you how, how it is, we can identify with this, how we ourselves feel when we suffer these kind of things. He says, because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. Now I think, my friends, that when we are going through great trials or suffrage in this life, we have a theological footprint upon our hearts. And it's not so removed from the truth. Because sin, the Bible, let me give you a New Testament explanation of what's going on. Sin reigns unto death. We feel it in our members. That's what's produced in a trial. Our death. I'm eating ashes. My skin is cleaving to my bones. I'm worthless to myself and no one around me. It's God's wrath, the reason for which I undergo this terrible affliction. He has brought me down low. And it is true. I think it's a wonderful thing to express the fact that this earth is under a curse of God because of sin. Now, it's not God's fault that we go through these troubles and trials. It's a necessary evidence that we have faith and this faith is vomited out in the world. In many cases, the trials and tribulations that we ourselves endure is just a matter of natural coincidence or consequence because of the situation that we find ourselves Even the best of men are limited at that, under duress. I was reading not long ago, I guess a month ago or more, uh, about a woman in Russia, Chetnia. She's 128 years, no proof of it. I mean, she's presented it. But anyway, it was a story online that I was reading. And when I read it, I said, Amen, sister. Watch this. See, there's two sides to every coin. And what I'm trying to show you that the first... Eleven verses of this chapter demonstrate one side of the story, one side of the coin. That's where we end up at. And this dear woman, 128 years old, you know what she said? God's punished me. I'm so sick and tired, she said, of working in this garden. That's how we feel. Bless her heart. I wish I could take her the gospel of God's redeeming grace. Because the other side of the coin is that God has good things towards you. That God has remedied your situation. That God has given you a hope to rise above the ashes. That God, the answer, is not found in that trial or tribulation. You feel the effect of it, don't you? Oh my goodness, here's a dear sister over there, blind and ignorant to the gospel of God's redeeming love. All she knows is what she's been dealt with. What a hard life. She don't know why she lived that long. She said, I didn't do anything. 
You know, we're over here in this world trying to do this and that so we can live long and prosper. Here she is under the indignation of God's wrath, curse upon sin. She feels it. Not God's fault. It was a necessary consequence of Adam's sin. Adam's sin. We don't, if you want to blame somebody in your trials, you blame Adam. You, you blame your father. You blame your own sin for which you are accountable for. But you cry into God to deliver you, to give you a hope. Because that's where we are right now. If you notice the very outset of verse 12, notice this. We go to the second theme of this book. And this verse I've named, if you will, an Elder Bloyd verse. Brother Steve, he's a great encourager. Brother Steve, he's always looking at the other side of the picture. He's a very confident person. You know, when I came to Mount Carmel, I was pretty low. And through Brother Stephen's preaching, constantly on encouragement and strength, lifting me up, I slowly came out of the, 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 sh- the shadows. I slowly rebounded in the faith of God's elect. I was in a miserable way. And so I see this great transition. But thou, O Lord, lifted me up. And this is the beauty of God's vision, of God's gospel. That he takes that which is by nature deplorable. And he brings us up. He sets our feet upon a rock, stabilized. He gives us confidence He encourages us in the things of God. And he helps us to look back. You know there's no guarantee that this old brother here was ever delivered. That he ever found relief. At least, I'm sure he did, he found relief in God. But I'm talking about his circumstances. And this second side of the coin, like that 128-year-old woman in Chetnia, she may never have been delivered from that garden that she had to hoe all her life. But tell you, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when we will be delivered. I love the story about a man who lost his home, lost his family. They deserted him, lost his job, running around the city homeless. There's a lot of people like that. Be careful. You may be entertaining strangers unawares. But anyway, this old man, he was walking the streets, the city streets, in the greatest trial of his life. And he heard in the background a noise. He walked closer to this construction site, and there was a mason pounding on a rock. He said, what you doing there, young man? He said, I'm working on this stone down here. I'm chiseling it away because it goes up there as he points to the top of the cathedral. And right then and there, that homeless person felt in his heart that God was talking to him, that God spoke to him volumes. He felt like all that he experienced was for a greater purpose that God was preparing him for something up there. Look with me for a minute as we look at some stages or some additional themes in this second half of the scripture. This scripture here is unnoticed, as I mentioned before. Many people look over it. It's one of the most forgotten psalms in the Bible, if you will. Um, forgot. The only reason I'm here is because when I was studying the work of regeneration, I came to this particular scripture where he makes note of the new birth. That's where I found it. And I found a jewel hidden in the secret mind shaft of God's wonderful word. And what I learned here, it's amazing that the words are so powerful. Watch this. In verses 12 through 17, it's a picture of God on the throne. He says, thou shalt arise. From what? From his bed? No, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Arise. It's a picture of God on his throne. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. You take that phrase, you cross-reference it to the translator's reference in Psalms chapter 9 and verse 7, and you'll see that it's speaking of the throne of God. The throne of God. What better view that you can have in your trials and in your afflictions to know The God of glory hasn't abrogated his throne, that he remains seated, and he's a faithful creator. 
He says, thou shalt arise. He's calling on God in his prayer, awaken as Stephen there was being stoned to death. The Lord Jesus Christ stood up and bent over, if you will, the banisters of heaven to receive Stephen and his spirit, having been stoned to death into glory. What a beautiful picture. Our Lord is not silent. He hears the cries of his people. He loves the groans. He's near to the contrite and the humble heart. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalms 34. God is a friend. This is the oddity of this scripture. We picture God in his throne. He's on the throne, yes. He's sovereign, but what good is that to me? Well, he says, For thy servants take pleasure in us. Listen to this. For thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. He says, verse 17, He will regard the prayer of the destitute and despise not them that pray. Look at Psalms 37. Real quick, as we move fast, we're down to we're coming to the close. But I want you to get this very important Steve Bloyd message this morning. That God is in the heavens and he's doing whatsoever he pleases. But his ear attends to the hearts of the contrite. The righteous cry, verse 17. The Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. I used to quote that scripture all the time. The Lord delivereth them out of them all. No. That personal pronoun includes me. The Lord delivereth him out of them all. You put your name on that verse the next time you need it. As Brother Steve says, you may not need this right now. But you carry it in your hip pocket. Because when you do go through afflictions and troubles, you can pull it out and find solace and rest in the time of need. He sees God. He sees his throne, that he's the ruler. Watch this. He sees the work, for thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So he sees the work of God continuing on as he remembers the house of God. And he's looking at the lowest level of service. Because that's good enough for me when I go through the trial of my life. I'll take the dirt of God's church floor than being abandoned in the wilderness of forgetfulness. I want to be numbered with the people of God in the household of faith. I'll be a servant. I'll be the doorkeeper in the house of God rather than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what prayers do. And that's what contrite heart eventually ends up. It ends up to be a humble servant in the house of God's kingdom. I'll take the dust thereof. And that might be the illusion, that one in captivity. I don't know. But even David was far removed from the temple worship. He was, he was, he was in the woods. And at one particular time in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we read of a prince that went to him in secret. You know who that prince was? The son of Saul. His name was Jonathan. He was next in line. But old Jonathan knew something that David knew. And that is that you are God's choice king to sit on the throne. And the Bible says that Jonathan went to David in the wood to strengthen his hand in God. That's what you and I do for our brothers and sisters in the service of God. If that's the least we can do, we're doing great things in the service of God. We're doing that which Jonathan did. You know, we live in a day that the church is, it's just, you know, we don't need that. You know why? Because we're enriched, increased with goods. We have need of nothing. We don't know our own depravity. We don't know our own sin. God hasn't humbled us. And if we were, we forgot what it was all about. We're not refined by the fire. We're living on a life of ease and luxury. And we're not, down, we're not brought low. I was amazed this week as I listened carefully to a political pundit's uh, summation of his life, having been given two weeks to live. And I'm sitting there listening to it. I know, I know he's going to get to the part where I want to hear. I know where he wants to turn his attention and focus his, 
All his, his, his heart toward the spiritual kingdom. I want to see where he's going to go. But it wasn't the case. I can't judge his heart. I don't know what's in his heart. But there was no preparation to meet his God. Somebody gives you two weeks to, to live. I think you'll be going to church two Sundays in a row. And I think you'll be reading your Bible. I think you'd be interested in finding out what God has to say about death. What is that unknown? Oh, no. I like baseball. And I like this. And I've done this. And I'm satisfied. No. Prepare to meet thy God. Two weeks to live. And not an ounce of it on his mind. Maybe we just live a life of luxury. God's going to use this church or anybody in it. He's going to do it through great affliction. He sees his work. He sees his church. Also, he sees his hope. For those of you who want to know what the future holds, look what he says. And here's a text I found when I was studying regeneration. He says, This shall be written for a generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. He's not talking about something physically. Because children of God ain't born naturally. Children of God are born spiritually. To a people, to a generation, which shall be created. The work of the Lord will continue on. God will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord will have a people created by His sovereign pleasure. They shall praise the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When you have a hope, you come to church and death is not all around you. There's life. You sing of the greatness of our God. You sing of the majesty and the wonder of His redemptive work in the Lord Jesus Christ. You rejoice that He's not dead in some sepulcher. That He's seated at the right hand of all majesty. And you've got a hope of everlasting life. You're happy to know that God will continue. Because you see His people together with Him. The inheritance of His lot. You see how wonderful the Lord is. I'm going to move on because i got two other things and I'll close. He sees God's weariness. Excuse me, nearness. That's my note in verses 19 through 24. You can tell I hurried on in the last part of this chapter, but it's the most important part. In other words, he presents God not just simply on the throne, but very near. He says, verse... 19, for thou hast looked down. You hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, to praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together. And so I see those scriptures, verses 19 through 23, if you want to make notes, as to the nearness of God while we're in these troubles and these trials. But in the last portion... In verses 24 through 28, we see something glorious. And I'm going to close on this point. It's very neat because, as I said before, this psalm might not add up to the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament. You know, the 22nd, the 23rd, the 24th, the 69th, the 51st. I mean, all 119, all these precious psalms. Old Psalm 102 is just long forgotten among the New Testament writers. And yet, we look at this last phase and we see the Lord's glory because it pictures Christ as the Creator. It's quoted by the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Watch this. He says, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure i tell you what, you pitch your troubles against the enduring faithfulness, continuity of God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And i tell you, brothers and sisters, your troubles will go down the drain. There will be nothing that you will not endure for your God, though you yourself may not see the victory this side of the grave. You will rest in the confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He said, they shall perish, the earth shall perish, and I'm going to perish along with them. But I shall be found in the likeness of my Lord and Savior, you see. 
That's what he's saying here. All this is going to be done away with. It shall be changed. When? According to God's own timetable. When in the history of God's redemption, we shall come forth liberated from our bondage to serve with him forever and ever. And even if we don't see the glory of that wonderful, prosperous life right here and now, we are being prepared for our light affliction is but for a moment. It worketh, but for a moment compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. I don't know all the details about this particular story, but years ago, uh, several young men had the desire to take the gospel to the deep parts of the Amazon. This is way before Jim Elliott. And this group of American evangelists went down to take the word of God to such primitive cultures uh, in there in the jungle. And they were there. They all got there safely. They were ready to go. They had their Bibles, but one thing took place. The supply ship got lost. It never made it. They had great designs to stay there for the longest time. But in a short time, every one of them starved to death. They never saw their goals. They never never saw the fruition of their purposes. But, and I can't remember all the details, as I said... When they were found, they were found all dead at the opening of a cave. And upon the cave, there was a scripture reference from the book of Psalms. I can't remember exactly which one. But I can assure you, if recollection serves me right, it was one that denoted the ever-abiding faithful presence of a faithful creator in great times of trouble. That scripture portrayed the faith of these young men who had a desire that didn't give up in spite of the tragic circumstances, in spite of the fact that they would not make it. They did not give up their faith in an all-encompassing God who would bring them, prepare them for a life in everlasting glory. May the Lord bless you this morning. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.